An article I read in the secular newspaper several years ago reported that denominational churches were losing three out of four of their children to the world by their early 20s. Flavel, Nick, uh, excuse me, Flavel Yeakley, a Christian researcher and author, reported that we in the Church of Christ are losing one out of every two children to the world by their early 20s. A man named Ken Ham, a religion researcher, conducted a study of when and why these children are losing their faith. And his book entitled Already Gone details the disturbing answers to these questions. We're not losing our children in their early 20s. We start to lose them in their preteen years with their initial exposure to the world outside their homes and churches. Parents rarely notice this spiritual death by a thousand cuts because their children continue to attend Bible class and worship with their families. Satan is weakening their faith in preparation for the day that they leave home. He is figuratively hiding in the bushes in the front yard, waiting for the day that they walk off that front porch. How can we prevent raising another generation that knows not God? Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Surveys conducted by LASDA leaders and in participating congregations in various sites and uh, locations throughout the United States found that of those children who are actively involved in LASDA leaders throughout their primary and secondary school years have a faith retention rate of 80 to 90 percent after 10 years out of high school. In the 50, 50 years of its existence, over 260,000 children have been involved in the Lads to Leaders program. And it is not a youth program. It is a congregational program that requires the involvement and support of the congregation to achieve its maximum effectiveness. The Buford Leadership Program is under the complete control and responsibility of the elders, not lads to leaders. Lads to leaders simply conducts workshops, conventions, and develops study materials. And our goal is to train up boys and girls to be effective Christian leaders in their respective roles, in their families, their churches, schools, communities, and careers. What greater legacy can we as parents and grandparents leave the Lord's Church than to prepare, prepare our youth to overcome the challenges facing them in the years ahead. Lads and Leaders is not an end-all solution to this challenge, but it is a proven tool available to the congregations that are willing to put forth the effort to make it work. As a Lads and Leaders board member and convention director here in Atlanta, I urge parents to register their children on the Buford website today for the Buford Leadership Program and involve yourselves in your children's leadership training activities throughout their school years. And if you have any questions at any time about LASDA leaders, please feel free to contact me anytime, day or night. And God bless to Billy and Chase as they implement the Buford Leadership Training Program here at Buford. Thank you.
Good morning. Y'all are so trained. I love it. I love it. I love it. Good morning. Good morning. If you would please stand as we open our worship this morning. We'll sing 261 out of the supplementer on the screen behind me, before the throne. 261. <clears throat> before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is Graven on its hands. My name is written on its heart. I know that while in heavy sand, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan Sing all the verses of this song, but if you would, um, during the song, uh, the gentlemen, please just sing the chorus, and the ladies, please just sing the verses. Again, the ladies on the verses, and then the gentlemen, the chorus, with the ladies on the chorus, not just the gentlemen, uh, but uh, ladies, and then add the gentlemen in the chorus. We'll sing all three verses. <coughs> Lead me gently home, Father, lead me gently home. When my soul's are 
Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning in reverence, 
praising you, Father. We are so thankful to be your children, to have this great privilege of worship. Father, we thank you for our many blessings, for the air that we breathe, for our families, for our homes, for the many ways we have to make a living. But Father, we're also mindful that many of our family members and many of our friends have lost uh, financial help. They've lost uh, their health from this pandemic. We pray, Father, for them. Our Father, we call upon your high and holy name with request and thanksgiving. We are grateful to worship in person, be with our fellow Christians, and also to have the ability to worship online. Father, we have so many that still can't be with us, and we ask your caring blessings on them. We have many on our sick list and family members that are battling health issues. And Father, we know that you know each one, and we pray that you be with them and be with their caregivers that are caring for them. Father, we also have many members that have lost loved ones and, and where our heartfelt sympathy and sorrow goes out to them. Father, we give you thanks for the leaders here at Buford. Please be with them and their families as they look out for all the members. And we give you thanks for our ministers, both here and the ones we support in the mission field. Father, we are so blessed to be members here at Buford. Many of our senior members are experiencing health problems and we pray for them. And we have several sweet, precious little ones to enter this world, and we pray for the proud parents and the grandparents. Father, we are going through a time in this world that is shocking and beyond belief. And we trust in, your, trust in you, Lord, that you know better than us. And uh, we know, Father, that you are in control. And if you've told us in your word that you will take care of your children. We love you, Lord, and we love your son, and the one who lived a perfect life, taught lessons, and was killed that we might live. Father, we praise you and pray that we can treat others just as your son did. And when we don't, we ask for your forgiveness. This is our prayer in your holy son's name. Amen. We now begin to transition our minds towards the partaking of the Lord's Supper and communion. Uh, and to do that, we'll sing 384. Lead me to Calvary, 384. We'll sing all four verses of this song and then hop, have an opportunity to partake. <clears throat> King of my life, I crown thee. Oh, 
We've come to the time in our weekly worship that's been set aside to remember Jesus. As I've mentioned before, an interesting area of study for me has always been the many relationships that exist between the Old Testament practices and those in the New Testament. Foreshadowing often occurs uh, where a greater meaning or purpose exists beyond the actual events themselves. A deeper understanding of what was commanded and observed in previous periods of history can result in a richer, more meaningful appreciation for what we're participating in today. Such is the case with this memorial feast that we're about to partake in. There are many parallels that can be made between the Jewish system of worship and our remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary. This morning we'll focus on one. We understand that man's greatest problem is sin. Every single one of us are stained by the sins we've committed. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 clearly and succinctly presents God's solution to our sin problem. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. An inferred consequence of the first sin as recorded in Genesis chapter 3 is that animals were killed in order to provide the skins God used to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And prior to the law being delivered through Moses, we read of patriarchs, including Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, offering animals on altars to cover their sin and to restore relationship between holy God and sinful man. Later, under the law of Moses, there was a special day each year designated to accomplish this particular purpose as well. The Day of Atonement took place on the 10th day of the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, and that's five weeks from today on our calendar. Details are found in Exodus chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter 16. On this particular day, the high priest was required to bathe and put on uh, special clothing. A bull and two rams were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the high priest himself. Two goats were also taken, and one of these was set apart to be sacrificed in order to atone for the sins of the entire nation. The blood from these animals was taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest alone on this single day each year. He made several visits. He sprinkled the blood of the bull on the Ark of the Covenant and in particular on the the mercy seat, the area on the top of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. On a, a later visit, he sprinkled the blood of the goat on that same ark and that same mercy seat. These sacrifices and rituals were repeated annually for centuries. The Hebrew writer uh, tells us why in chapter 10 and verse 4, where it reads, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now let's return to Hebrews chapter 9 and we'll pick up the reading in verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things 
to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This morning, let us focus on Christ and the once for all sacrifice of his blood, which has been shed for me and for you. Let's offer thanks for Jesus' body. Father, we remember Jesus and his body at this time. We're we're full of gratitude for his willingness to take our place in paying the penalty for our sin. We ask that you give us strength as we commune together and we eat this bread. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's bow as we offer thanks for the, the blood of Jesus. Father, we, uh, we continue to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus at this time. And we thank you for the blood that Jesus shed once for all. We thank you that our sins are continually covered and that we can appear before you and commune with you being clothed in Christ. Please bless us as we continue our communion together uh, with you and with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, during our worship period, we have the opportunity to participate in another command, and that's to contribute to the work of the kingdom that's being carried out in this place and those that we are involved in supporting around the world. We have the opportunity to give online with PayPal or use the blue bins that have been provided in the foyer on our exit from the building this morning. The children of Israel were not passive participants on the Day of Atonement. They were commanded to fast on that particular day. And in fact, this is the only specific day that God commanded uh, the entire nation to fast. This was a solemn day of sorrow and repentance over sin and its consequences. And in that context, fasting makes complete sense. Jesus calls us as his disciples today to deny ourselves each and every day and to follow him. God has blessed us so very richly. Every good thing that we have has come from God. But everything that we have isn't necessarily good, and certainly not in and of itself. I don't know about you, but I often confuse confuse these things. Let's, uh, Let's make sure that we see God's blessings 
as they truly are. And let us see the distractions and the footholds for Satan as they are. And let us deny ourselves to, and, and, and to use the, the blessings that he's given to us for his purposes and, and for his glory. Let's give out of our thanksgiving and our appreciation for, for what he's done and, and the joy that we have in receiving the blessings he's given to us. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for your blessings. We ask for guidance and wisdom as stewards, and we pray that we'll recognize you as the source of everything good in our lives. Please accept our gifts uh, this morning and bless all those involved in the collection, the distribution, and the use of these funds. May these gifts accomplish much for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. have a couple more songs before Kyle's lesson. <clears throat> the first is going to come out of the orange book um, and will be on the screen behind me and that'll be Make Me a Servant, number 133 if you have one of those in front of you. 133, Make Me a Servant. <clears throat> Sing all the verses of the song. <clears throat> Make me a servant, Lord, make me like you, for you are a servant. Make me one too, make me a servant, do what you must
time, if you are using the book in front of you, <clears throat> would like to mark the song after the lesson. It'll be 107. Come unto me, 107. Then uh, we will sing The Greatest Commands, uh, which if you have a book in front of you that has on the back cover, it'll be on the back cover. If not, it's on the screen behind. The Greatest Commands. We'll sing all the verses of the song and then have our lesson. <clears throat> Love one another This morning will be from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things against is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, be, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as laws for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be the loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to begin by saying thank you. Uh, Thank you to all of you for the kindness shown to Sarah and I over the past few weeks. Uh, Thank you for the gifts you've given us, the cards you've written, the messages you've posted. We appreciate it all, and it's just a reminder to us of how blessed we are to be at the Buford Church of Christ. And I, and I hope every one of you has that same feeling about the church, that, that same uh, level of love, that, that, that appreciation of the body of Christ, because it truly is a blessing to be a part of it. And we are grateful to you for all the love shown to us over these past few weeks. You know, Sarah and I never intended to go seven years without having another child. That's just the way it worked out. And as a result... We're having to relearn some things that we kind of had forgotten. You know, a few weeks ago, I was getting the furniture together in the house, and one thing I was setting up was a pack-and-play in our living room downstairs so we'd have a place to lay Leah when she needed a nap, or there are some uh, accessories to that pack-and-play that provide a changing table on it and things like that. And I could not figure out how to set up that pack-and-play. It had been so many years since I've used it. And, and though there's a lot of you younger people out there who've never touched a pack-and-play, there are plenty of you adults who know that a pack-and-play is simply jerk up, push down. It's the simplest thing in the world to put together. But I, couldn't fi- I had to get a YouTube video and watch it to remember how to do it. That's how bad it was. And then when we were at the hospital, shortly after Leah was born and, and they were getting her ready and everything, uh, the, the nurse was getting ready to swaddle her, and I said, hey, hold up for a second. Can, can I watch you do that? Because I don't remember how to swaddle a child anymore. And so I had to have a nurse teach me in the hospital how to do something I knew seven years ago. And then uh, diaper changing came back pretty easily. <laughs> Except for on one of our first nights home, I, I made a rookie mistake. I removed the dirty diaper before I had pulled the clean diaper to use And you know, any of you who've had children and changed diapers, you know that that's just an open invitation for a mess. And Leah graciously took that invitation right on my hand. And and so we've had these experiences where we're having to relearn some things that we had uh, maybe forgotten or had stored away in the recesses of our brain uh, after seven years. And... What's so very interesting to me is, is that this concept of having to relearn some things we previously knew, um, this, this whole process of learning again, kind of contributed to my preparation for today's lesson coming from Philippians chapter 3. Now, it's been a few weeks, but we've been engaged in this study of Philippians all summer. And, and we're studying the book of Philippians through the framework of joy. 
We're doing that because the, the concept of joy, the very word joy and its cognates, appear more frequently in the book of Philippians than any other New Testament book. It's as if Paul wants us to understand that everything can be categorically joyous if you look at it with the right perspective. And so we've been journeying through this book this summer, and, and we've been noticing how we can find joy in some less than desirable situations or some less than desirable experiences. We've, we've studied how we can find joy in the church, how we can find joy in difficulties, how we can find joy in death or persecution, in humility and exercise and service. And today we come to this point in Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses, where I'm going to contend that implicitly Paul is telling us that we can find joy in learning. Now I'm going to concede that that's not the, the uh, obvious subject matter of this section of Scripture. If you look at Philippians chapter 3 in those first 11 verses, it seems that it has nothing to do with education or learning whatsoever. Paul is focused here in this text on the fallacy of external and man-made righteousness. That's his objective to speak about here. He's going to warn his readers to watch out for those false teachers, those Judaizers who try to make circumcision a requirement for salvation. You know, under Mosaic law, circumcision was an external representation of one's sanctification. It was one of the ways that, that your special relationship with God was manifested. So in the minds of the Jews, circumcision and salvation were synonymous. Therefore, some Jewish Christians in the first century wanted to enforce this practice on Gentile Christians. They wanted to make Gentile Christians observe Mosaic law as well, and at least the standards by which they were distinguished from the rest of the people. But those practices had been abolished by the cross. And so Paul warned the Philippians to watch out for such individuals because they pushed for an external display of righteousness. In this section, Paul is also going to present his own spiritual resume. He's going to compare himself, in a sense, to these false teachers because he used to believe the very same thing they did about external righteousness. He told of his personal transformation from a man who prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus boasted in his heritage and boasted in his achievements because he thought those things were what made him righteous. But, but then he met Christ. And he's going to say here in Philippians chapter 3 that he's changed. That after his conversion, he threw those man-made sources of righteousness into the garbage because he realized that righteousness was not contingent on what he had done but on what Christ had done for him. So the thrust of this section is combating the idea that external man-made righteousness matters. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice what Paul said his life's ultimate goal is down in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul indicates that his goal in life, he concludes this section of Philippians by indicating that his goal in life is to know Christ. He wants to know Christ. Now, the Greek word here for know is the term gnosko. It's one of the few Greek words that I still remember from 20 years ago when I took Greek. 
And, and I know you, most people will sit in the audience like this and preacher will mention a Greek word, and you're like, well, what's the point? Why do we need to know this Greek word? Why, why is that important? Well, I want you to know the, the, the Greek-English lexicon definition of this word. In Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, it says that the word gnosko, which is the word that appears here in this text, it means to learn, it means to comprehend, it means to perceive, it means to become acquainted with, and it's even a term used as an idiom for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. I mention that idiom because it indicates that this level of knowledge that Paul is pursuing is not some cursory awareness. It's not some, some, some basic idea of a subject. This is not a, a Cliff Notes level of familiarity. This is not a, a Wikipedia level of research. This is not a Facebook level of friendship. This is deep, this is intimate, this is personal. He wants to know Christ in a way that, that is deep, that is serious, that is more complicated than you might imagine. Paul wants to so learn Christ that he can become like Christ. He wants to so know Christ that he understands the power of his resurrection. He wants to be so acquainted with Christ that he shares in the sufferings of Christ. Now, I want to pause here for just a second because I, I want to ask you a question, but I don't want your, your immediate response. I want you to ponder on this for a second. We don't need your politically correct answer. We need your deep, in the midst of your heart answer to this. Do you want to know Christ the way that Paul wants to know Christ? Do you want to know Christ to the degree that you want to experience his sufferings? Do you want to know Christ to the degree that you fully comprehend his power? Do you want to know Christ on the level that Paul wants to know Christ? Because my fear is that for a great many believers, we want to know Christ just enough. We want to know just enough about Christ to get by. We want to know just enough about Christ to punch our ticket to heaven. We want to know just enough. We want to know Christ to the degree that it's necessary. Paul wants to take it a step further. Paul wants to know Christ intimately. Paul wants Christ to consume everything about himself. Do you want to know Christ to that same degree? That's what I want you to really think about today. Because such knowledge requires learning. But here's the thing about learning. The process of learning is not always enjoyable. But learning will always produce joy. When uh, this pandemic began and we were all isolated at our homes, I decided that with that extra time I had being around Micah every day, I wanted to finalize her bike riding learning. We had done some of it before. She had, had practiced in some ways, but we, we had, she had not mastered it yet. And so multiple days a week, we'd go up to a library near our house and we'd get the bike out and practice in that parking lot. And any of you who have ever taught a child to ride a bike know that there is one request they have. 
Don't let go of the bike. But you know, as the instructor, the parent, whatever, you know that at some point you have to let go of the bike or else they're not going to learn. The way they're going to ultimately learn to ride the bike is to to have it under their control where they're learning how to balance their body on it and they're learning how to move the the, the handlebars and they're learning how to uh, adjust the speeds as they pedal. You have to let go of the bike for them to learn. But if you let go of the bike, what's inevitably going to happen? At some point in time, they're going to fall. And it's not going to be pretty. And Micah had a few really uh, bad falls with the bike. On one occasion, she actually flipped over the handlebars, and, and, and one side of the handlebars dug into the, the, the pavement, and the other one stuck straight up and caught her in her gut. I thought I'd never get her back on a bike again. But unfortunately, the falls, the difficulties, are part of the learning process. And they may be physically painful on the student as he or she is learning to ride, and they are emotionally painful on the parent or the instructor as you don't want to see them get hurt and you don't want them to fall. But that's part of the learning process. And my whole point is this, that when it comes to learning, joy is found not in the process, but in the produce and what it produces in the end game. This reality kind of led me to contemplate a a couple of passages that do not directly mention learning and joy per se, but they do imply a relationship between the two. I I want you to notice Romans chapter 8 with me for just a moment, particularly verse 18 and verse 28. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then in verse 28, he said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here's what I was thinking. Throughout the New Testament, suffering is depicted as a tool used for our education. You can see this in passages like Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, or James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Suffering is on occasion used for our education in the sense that it results in spiritual growth and spiritual maturation. And what Paul, I think, is saying here in Romans chapter 8 is that the process of learning, which may include some periods of suffering, they're not always enjoyable. But if God is allowed to utilize those teaching experiences, even the unenjoyable ones, they will produce joy. Whether it be the eternal joy of heaven, the glory that is to be revealed, or the fulfillment of God's plan for our life via the statement that all things work together for good. If we let God work through the educational system that He chooses, joy will be the byproduct. Let me also take your attention to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11. The author of Hebrews does this section in Hebrews chapter 13 where he talks about discipline. And he says this in verse 11 of Hebrews 13. For the moment, all discipline seems painful 
rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. We have to think about discipline in terms of a tool used for education as well. We discipline our children so that they learn not to make that mistake. We discipline our employees so they learn they can't do that. We utilize discipline for training purposes. It is an educational tool. And what the author of Hebrews seems to be saying is that God at times will discipline his people so that they may learn something, so that they may be trained. And he's acknowledging that the learning process, the discipline, it's not enjoyable. He says all discipline seems painful, but yet it will produce joy. Because he says later that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is a relationship between learning and joy in the sense that the process is not going to be enjoyable, but the byproduct will. You see, the reality is that God has some things that He wants us to learn. And that means we have to endure, endure the various teaching methods that He chooses to employ. And not all of those methods are going to be enjoyable. But in the end, if we let God work through His way, it will produce the fruit of joy. And I want to tell you two ways in which that can happen today. We have to realize that the learning process provides protection. It may not be enjoyable, but the learning process provides protection. When you're educated on a matter, you are from that point forward prepared to protect yourself from repeating a mistake or accepting a false belief or falling for a gimmick. When Sarah and I had first gotten married, or, or actually first bought a house, uh, we got a grill. I always wanted to have my own propane grill outside so I could grill steaks and hamburgers. And we finally had a house where I could have one. On the back side of that house, we had a deck. About two-thirds of it was open air. About one-third had an awning over it. And one day, early on, I was grilling out there, and it started to rain on me. So I pulled that grill over to the awning area. I had it just outside the awning area so the smoke wouldn't get trapped, just outside the awning area so I could stand under the awning and grill. And I finished up our meal. We sat down and ate, and then I went outside to clean the grill and noticed that the siding on my house was melted. Much like that painting by uh, Salvador Dali with the melting clocks, that's what my house looked like. What I had failed to do in looking to make sure I wasn't below something I didn't need to be under, I forgot to look if I was too close to something that was beside me. And it was a horrible education experience. But for me, it was one of those moments where, that I walked away from going, okay, I'm never going to do that again. And so a few weeks back, I've got a grill here at our house uh, here, and uh, we were getting ready to grill some hamburgers, and it started raining. And Sarah's like, well, can you pull that thing in the garage and just cook it in there? And I'm like, nope, I know the answer to that one. I've learned that lesson, and I'm not doing that again. 
So our mistakes can, or excuse me, our learning process can provide protection because it teaches you what not to do at times. You know, I'm sure many of you have a similar experience where you make such a colossal mistake that all you can do is walk away from it saying, I'm never going to do that again. See, there is a protective function to the learning process. And here's the point, that knowledge, it has this, this function to it. In the context of spiritual matters, knowledge equips you to guard your faith against false teaching. Now, we already alluded to the fact that here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is warning his readers about false teachers. I want you to notice a word that appears in the very first verse of Philippians chapter 3. It's there that Paul says, he gives the instruction to rejoice once again, and then he launches into this statement, to write to you, or to write the same things to you, is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. It's safe for you for me to repeat these instructions. The New American Standard, which Jay read from a minute ago, says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. That word translated safe or safeguard is a Greek term that refers to something that's firm, that's secure, that's certain. So Paul is saying that what he's writing is not new information, but what he's writing is for their spiritual protection. And that leads Paul to issue a warning in verse 2. To look out for the dogs, to look out for the evildoers, to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about what we call Judaizers. Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians who went around trying to convince Gentile believers to submit to the practice of circumcision. So what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi is that they need to protect themselves from the false teaching espoused by those who want to advocate for an external or man-made righteousness. Now, how does this relate to you and I? How does this apply to you and I? We don't have anybody busting through the doors of our congregation saying that we need to be circumcised. That, that teaching is not an, a, a, a teaching that we have to worry about. We're not concerned that that false teaching is going to creep into our congregation. So how does this warning apply to us? I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you familiar enough with God's Word to protect your faith from false teaching? Are you, you, not are our elders, not are our ministers, are you familiar enough with God's Word to protect your faith from false teaching? Consider for a moment the claims that are made about the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Word of God is, is referred to as the sword of the Spirit, which we must equip ourselves with in order to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the Word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be complete. The point of those passages to me is that our familiarity with God's Word is of utmost importance so that we can protect our faith. But how familiar are you with God's Word? Are you able to protect your faith when God's, with God's Word? Are you able to protect your faith with God's Word when someone says that you don't have to be baptized in order to receive salvation? 
Are you able to protect your faith with God's word when someone says that you can't lose your salvation? How familiar are you with God's word? Far too often, I encounter Christians who know the right words to say, but they can't connect it to a scripture. They can only connect it to what they heard in a lesson or a Bible class or they read in an article, but they can't defend it. See, Paul is talking to these these Christians in Philippi and saying, hey, you need to be able to protect yourself against false teaching. But we've gotten so comfortable in our culture that we don't worry about false teaching that much. We believe that the leaders of the church will handle that. But they're not with you at your place of work when you're discussing faith with one of your co-workers or peers. They're not with you in the classroom when your teacher starts talking about evolution. They're not with you at your home where you encounter your neighbors who profess a faith different than yours. Are you able to defend your faith using God's Word? Are you so familiar with it that you can do that? I think that's what we need to take away from what Paul initially says here in Philippians chapter 3 as he battles false teachers himself. We need to, in fact, heed an admonition presented by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, which I encourage you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, because there Peter has this to say to us. He says, be on guard so that we may not be carried away by error and fall from our secure position. That's a call for you to be prepared, for you to be alert, for you to be watchful, for you to be on guard and on the defensive for your faith. And the only way to do that, Peter says in the very next verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So are you familiar enough with God's Word to protect your faith? And this passage from Peter leads us to our next thing. See, there's joy in learning because learning provides protection, but there's also joy in learning because learning leads to maturation. Education and maturation typically go hand in hand. I mean, you you think about it. We start our children in kindergarten. They go through grade school. They go through middle school. They go through high school. Some go on to college and, and earn degrees, and all of that is a, 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 there's a relationship between maturation and education through that system. The thing is, when you learn new information, it tends to change you. It, it may broaden your knowledge on a particular subject. It may equip you with a, a new skill set. It may alter your perspective on a particular issue. So when I say that learning leads to maturation, what I mean is that it changes you. It, it is, it's in the context of spiritual education, Learning leads to maturation because it corrects your theological misconceptions. It reveals your spiritual blind spots, and it challenges your faith. When we look at what Paul's writing here in Philippians chapter 3, it's very interesting the comparison he makes between himself and those false teachers. 
because Paul used to be like them. He basically said that if they want to emphasize the flesh, if they want to emphasize works, if they want to emphasize man-made righteousness, external righteousness, then he's got them all beat. And he goes on here in verses 4 through 6 to list his resume. Look at what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul is saying is I would be the number one overall pick if we were having a a Jewish faith recruiting system. But Paul doesn't stop there. After presenting his spiritual resume, Paul says this in verses 7 and 8. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul had learned that nothing was more important than his pursuit of Jesus Christ. He was willing to give up everything of value to him in order to know Christ. Consider for a moment what he's giving up here. He's giving up his heritage. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't some Johnny-come-lately to the Jewish religion. I was of the stock of Israel. I was of the elite tribe of Benjamin. My parents were Hebrews. My mother was a Hebrew. My father was a Hebrew. I'm not from a mixed race. His words here even indicate that he may have spoken the Hebrew language, which was not ordinary in his day. Most people simply spoke Aramaic, not the language that Scripture was written in. And you know what? He's saying, I gave up my heritage. I gave up my past, my ancestry, if you will. And here's the problem. Too many of us have this same mentality towards ourselves. You'll hear people say, I've been going to church for 70 years. I've been there every time the door was open. My father was a preacher. My grandfather was an elder. My great-grandfather started that church over there. And they placed their confidence in their heritage. Their past is what dictates their worth in their eyes. But righteousness isn't found in yourself. Righteousness is found in Christ. And Paul's saying, I I was so confident in this stuff, but now I'm not confident in that anymore. The only thing I'm confident in is knowing Jesus Christ. Then he says he also gave up all of his achievements, all of his honors, all of his performance pieces, if you will. He had talked about being a Pharisee, being a part of that esteemed religious party. He spoke about how much he loved Judaism, being willing to travel between countries to find those who opposed his religion and kill them. And he spoke about his ability to keep Mosaic Law. 
He said that he was blameless. That doesn't mean he never broke the law. That just means that in everything, even when he broke a law, he corrected it according to the law. He's listing all of his achievements, and don't we do that today sometimes? Don't we have people who will boast, well, I taught a Bible class for 30 years. I've been a deacon or I've been an elder for 20 years. I've gone on 10 different mission trips around the world. I attend every lectureship possible. I've done this, I've done that, I've been here, I've been there, and they go around confident in what they've done, not in what Christ has done for them. See, I'm talking about maturation right now, and we've got to mature from the point of looking at ourselves as the source of our spiritual confidence and instead look at Christ. The point that Paul seems to be making is that he's graduated from that look at who I am and look at what I've done mentality to a mentality that says, look at who Jesus is, look at what Jesus has done for me. Paul went through a maturation process when he received a unique spiritual education on the road to Damascus. And so he's saying, I used to think like those Judaizers thought, but Jesus corrected me. I've learned something better. Now, how does this apply to you and I? I want you to ask yourself this question today. What do you need to give up in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? What do you need to give up in order to grow the way that Christ intends for you to grow? There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 that I, I love. In it, after giving this, this uh, list of all the heroes of faith, the author of Hebrews comes back and says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This passage calls on us to lay aside some things. That's a, uh, that's a give something up instruction. That's a sacrifice instruction. It specifies that we should lay aside every weight and every sin. Now, the, the sin part we get. We understand that, that we're going to have to give up sin. We may not always do it as quickly as we should. There may be some sins that we cling to and we don't let go of, but the part we don't think about nearly as much is the every weight part. Some other passages, uh, some other translations say it this way. They refer to it as everything that hinders or every encumbrance. Or even one modern translation says, let's throw off any extra baggage and get rid of the sin that trips us up. The author of Hebrews is utilizing a running metaphor to convey to us that we've got to get rid of anything that holds us back, anything that slows us down, anything that is burdensome, anything that is hindering our ability to successfully complete the race. And he's not just talking about sin. He's talking about anything that takes your focus off of Christ. Because growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ is a life-consuming pursuit. The reason 
you have to lay aside some things so that you can focus on the most important thing. Paul laid aside the things he valued, his heritage and his achievements. What do you need to lay aside? What's hindering your growth? Is it your pursuit of success? Are you so caught up in trying to climb the corporate ladder? Are you so caught up in trying to make so much money? Are you so caught up in trying to extend your brand, if you will? Are you so caught up in your own life and in your own success story that Christ gets a back seat? That you're not seeking to know Christ? Is it some extracurricular activity or hobby that you do for fun? Or that you've got your kids engaged in? Is there something that is so time-consuming in your life that you don't have time to spend in God's Word so that you can prepare yourself to protect your faith when the time comes? Is it a relationship with somebody who detracts from your relationship with Christ? Is there somebody in your life that has a negative influence on you to the degree that it harms you spiritually? Is it a spirit of apathy? You just don't care. Is it sheer laziness that you need to lay aside? I'm afraid apathy might be the most dangerous virus in the church today. I know it's long. Andrew sang too many songs. It's his fault. But let me wrap this up. There are things we're going to have to lay aside. Let us not forget the rhetorical question Jesus posed in Luke 9.25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his, himself? His point is there are some things worth giving up so that you secure the most important thing. What do you need to lay aside so that you can learn Christ? One last thing I want to share with you is a story I've heard about eagles' nests. So, as you know, eagles' nests are perched high up in trees or, or on cliffs in various places, and you don't really get to see inside an eagle's nest. But according to what I was reading this week, there's a unique process in constructing such a nest. It starts with a, a layer of, of branches, of, of uh, even some rocks, even some thorns. Most unsuitable substances for a living space. And then the mother eagle will come back and put a layer of feathers, fur from animals she's killed, Maybe even uh, leaves and other, other materials that provide a cushier surface. And it's then once that, that soft, comfortable layer has been installed that she will lay her eggs. And for a few weeks, those eggs will, uh, those eggs will in a few weeks, those eggs will eventually hatch. And their little babies will emerge. And they'll be in that nice, comfortable nest and have their mother come and bring them food. But there is a day coming 
when they've got to get out of that nest. There's a day coming when they've got to learn to fly and they've got to learn to survive on their own. So you know what the mother eagle does? She goes back to the nest and she starts pulling up that padded surface, the feathers, the leaves, the fur. And she exposes that really uncomfortable layer of rocks and branches and thorns to make her babies feel so uncomfortable that they have to leave. Now, I'm not uh, presenting this message to get your kids out of the house. Th- though I can see on the looks of some of your faces, like, I, think, I think that's what James was taking from it there for a second. But I, that's not the point. The point is this. God's going to do things in your lives to get you to learn. And it's us, up to us to respond to those lessons with a desire to know Christ. Paul wanted to know Christ in the most intimate way possible. What about you? Do you want to know Christ like Paul wants to know know Christ? The learning process is uncomfortable, as was the case with the nest. But in the end, that baby eagle flies. That baby eagle survives. And that baby eagle becomes its own mature adult eagle. And the point is that even though the process of learning can be uncomfortable, the end result, the byproduct, is always joyous. Are you lacking joy in your life right now? Maybe it's time for you to learn joy by learning Christ. If you haven't become a child of God today, you can do so by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you need to acknowledge that you stopped growing, if you need to turn back to God and start getting to know Christ again, that opportunity is available as well. We invite you, whatever your need may be, to make things right with God, to get back on the pursuit of His will, while together we stand and sing.
We're so thankful that we've had the opportunity to worship you today, and we pray that that worship might be acceptable in your sight. Father, we were, we're worshiping you with the songs that we sung, meditating upon those words, and glorifying you with those songs. We pray, Father, that, that you would accept the prayer that was offered earlier, a prayer that pictures that which we really are searching for. And Father, we're so thankful we had the opportunity of gathering around the table of the Lord and thinking so much on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Father, we're so thankful that we have opportunity to share some of the goodness that you've given to us in the contribution. And Father, we pray that we may find joy. We understand that there's going to be effort on our part necessary. We pray your blessings, Father. And Father, as we conclude this service, we pray that you might, we might do so with joy. We might do so asking you to guide us through this, day, this coming day. Guide us, Father. Help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.